listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Well, church, uh, I love my family. That's good news, right? I, I, I love my wife and my children. They're precious to me. Um, I'm gifted uh, with, with the opportunity to love my job. I know that's not the case for everybody, but I, I love my job. I love that I get the, the opportunity to be a witness of the gospel and to think about how ministry can, can not just be something that happens on Sunday morning, but something that invades our lives and the lives of our community and spreads throughout the world. I love my job. I also love that I have the opportunity to have meaningful friendships with people. Friendships as as an extrovert help me keep going forward throughout this life on days that I want to quit. Friendships are a great gift to me. And there have been times in life where where I've had family and and I've had a job that I love and, and I've got friendships that are meaningful and yet I still struggle with things like anxiety and clinical depression and loneliness, even though I'm surrounded by people. There are times in life that, that I've got so many things to be thankful for, but, but stress mounts and builds up. And at times it feels like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. Have you ever felt that way before? I mean, even the gifts in life come with challenges. Marriage is a beautiful thing, um, but when you lock two sinners in a covenant together, <laughs> ugly things are going to show up at times. I love, I love my kids, and my, my kids are a blessing from God, but there are parenting challenges that just make life seem more difficult at times. Well, I love my work. There's a heaviness to it some days. I know all work is hard, but, but some seasons it just feels heavier. And while I've got friendships, sometimes there's not enough time or resources to put into them that I'd like to, and it just feels like a mounting weight of the world. And as I look around, it seems like I'm not alone in that. What does the weight of the world feel like for you I was driving with my daughter earlier this week. She's a teenager, and, and she was dealing with the fact that she wasn't going to be able to do some things that she was really excited about. And she, she uttered, I wish I was just older. She wanted a little bit more control to be able to get those things that she desires, and they're good things. And I sat there as her father grieving for the burden that she's bearing and thinking there are so many times in life where I wish I was just younger and didn't have the stressors. We all bear burdens to varying degrees. What are yours? Have you identified them? Are you able to name them? For some people, there's a massive burden of money in your life. Maybe you're fighting to get out of debt. Maybe no matter how hard you try, these things like savings accounts and and retirement seem elusive, always out of reach, and you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. And each passing day, that weight builds up. Maybe money's not a weight for you. Maybe you're a people pleaser and a peacemaker in your family, 
and you make a concerted effort to just try to make everyone happy, believing that if you just do the right amount of things, everyone will be joyful and content and you will all feel satisfied. And no matter how much you give, you never achieve that feeling you desire of peace. Maybe you've got a parent or in-laws who only know how to point out what you haven't done yet. No matter how hard you're trying, even the people that are supposed to support you don't help spur you along. For some people, it's work. Some of us work in toxic environments. Others of us might enjoy our job, but but sometimes it feels like the weight of our work is an 800-pound gorilla on our backs that we just can't rid ourselves of. We can't set a boundary in a day. It invades our personal lives. Some of us have very concrete weights Some of us is our imagination and things like Instagram come into our lives and we look at the sanitized pictures of the people around us and we scroll through their pictures and think they're getting ahead and they're getting better and I'm barely getting by. And the weight of the world builds squarely on our shoulders. Sometimes what feels like the weight of the world, the stress, the pressures of life, come from good desires and good things. However, it's possible that you're way more active for God than God intended you to be. I want you to listen to that. It's possible that you have so many good desires to accomplish things that you're way more active for God than God intended you to be in this life. And the weight mounts While Jesus promised, I came that you may have abundant life, I don't think he meant a life that's filled to the brim with pressure and stress that just keeps building. He actually meant abundant life is the life that we were meant to live with joyful union with him. How do you know if you're living like the weight of the world is on your shoulders? If you feel like life is more duty than delight, If you can't ever seem to get into the habit of practicing spiritual disciplines, things as simple as reading your Bible and praying, if you're able to get a lot done, but you still struggle with a deep tiredness in your soul, if you're irritable and hypersensitive to the shortcomings of others, if you're a restless workaholic or you've stopped caring for your own body, if you've been tempted to fill your life with thrill-seeking escapist activities, it may be that you're running on the treadmill of a curse instead of walking with God through life. And we all struggle with that to varying degrees. What are the weights that mount up on your shoulders? Friends, I want to tell you today that the solution isn't an escape from your life. It's better equipment to navigate this life. The good news is that God knew exactly what we needed from the beginning when things went awry. Last week, when we began this series, The Gift is Waiting, we talked about Genesis and the very beginning of the story of God when people try something other than God to bring fulfillment and satisfaction into life. And we said, idolatry is trusting God or trusting something other than God, and that always leads us to a life that feels like a curse instead of a blessing. In the midst of that, we see that God provided exactly what we need with a promise of a person who is going to give us true life, abundant life, 
because God is loving and gracious and merciful and good, he promised to meet our greatest need, a solution to sin and our problem of pain, to reverse the curse and give us communion with God once again. And that's what we're hoping for. And that's what we have faith in, that he's going to provide that promise to meet our needs. And then the the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis forward to Malachi. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. All of them are pointing to the person that was going to provide God's promise, our solution for pain and curse and sin and ultimately death. God uses all types of people to help remind the world of what he's going to do. God uses ordinary people, and he uses people that are in special positions. God uses prostitutes and priests to tell his message of redemption. God uses great leaders and some of the least likely heroes to forward his mission. God uses all types of people and circumstances to encourage the world to wait for the Savior that he was going to send. And one of those special types of people that God used throughout history were people called prophets. There are several books in the Old Testament that that are written by prophets. Prophets are messengers of God. They're leaders of God's people. It's sort of God's spokesperson. God would speak to the prophets. Then the prophets would turn around and speak to special groups of people about what it means to turn back to God and live in such a way that you're waiting for God's faithful promises to come to fruition. One of these special prophets in the Old Testament is a guy named Isaiah. In fact, if if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn in or turn on your Bible to Isaiah chapter 52. It's going to be a little bit over halfway through your Bible if you're still getting used to this book. Isaiah is, is a special book of the Bible. It's filled with prophecy that predicted the promised person to put an end to sin and death. Isaiah was written about 800 years before Jesus walked the face of this earth. And it's important to to remember that these prophets are real people in real places at real points in history. We learn from the book of Isaiah and from from all the resources we have at our disposal uh, to understand the Bible and when and how it was written that Isaiah was a prophet in Jerusalem in the 8th century BC. So Isaiah predicted what the savior of the world was going to look like 800 years before Jesus walked the face of this earth. And in that time, Isaiah was speaking to the people in Jerusalem and Jerusalem was in really bad shape at that point in history. Things were bad. And God says in the book of Isaiah, who is going to represent me to these people that have turned away from me? Who's going to represent me to these people that have, that have turned away from my way of living in order that they would turn back and be faithful and wait for that promised person that I said I would deliver? And we hear from a man named Isaiah, and his words early on in the book of Isaiah are, Here am I, Lord, send me. So God prepared Isaiah, and God spoke to Isaiah And then Isaiah's responsibility was to go and speak to the people. And throughout the book of Isaiah, we see God speak to Isaiah. Then Isaiah and go speak to the appointed people. And then they react to what he said. 
And Isaiah goes back to God and says, God, they ain't listening. And God says another message that he wants them, that he wants Isaiah to go say to them. And this pattern just keeps happening. God speaks to Isaiah. Isaiah speaks to the people. The people speak to Isaiah. Isaiah speaks to God. And there's this discourse for 66 chapters that goes on. It's a stunning story. I'd encourage you to read it. And in the midst of all that, Isaiah has these four poems, or or, or really they were songs. Songs of the servant that God promised all the way back in Genesis. These four servant songs were really to get people excited about the coming Savior again. If you're a fan of sports, maybe you've been at a sporting event. Before the start of the event, the athletes will all huddle together and they'll play special music. And that special music will get your heart rate going. And then your team will will run out onto the field, onto the court, onto the playing space, and get excited to go into competition. I believe these songs that Isaiah shares with us are like the hype songs for God's people to get them ready for the Savior. In fact, uh, a a friend and I used to to watch fights together, and before uh, boxers or martial artists would, would come and compete, we'd listen to their walkout music. And we would we would predict who was gonna win the fight based on better walkout music. It's, it's a crazy correlation, but that's for another day. This is like the walkout music for the servant of God. There's four of these songs that prepare the way to get people excited about the coming Savior. The first one comes in Isaiah chapter 42. I'll paraphrase it for you. In Isaiah chapter 42, the servant song is all about the righteous king who comes to reign in justice through the Spirit of God. That is a good hype song. The Savior of the world is going to reign in justice, and people should be excited about that. The second servant song comes in Isaiah 49 where it says this servant of the Lord is going to bring light and salvation to the nations. And in fact, he's going to wage war against chaos in the world. That's a good walkout song for the Savior. The third servant song comes in Isaiah chapter 50, where we're promised that this servant of God is going to sustain the weary. And in fact, all of his words are going to be like new encouragement day after day. Good walkout song. God's people should be excited. They've heard who it is. They've heard the type of work he's he's going to accomplish. But then we hear the, the fourth servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53. And after all this buildup, God's people are asking, but how is he gonna do those things? And Isaiah says, he's gonna do it through suffering. That's what we call a questionable walkout song. When you're hurting, when when your, your life feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, when you're weary, you don't want to hear about suffering. You want to hear about power. That was deflating for the people of God. Now, they're, they're promised that this is the way the Savior of the world is going to enter and make all the wrongs right. And it's nothing like what they thought it was going to be. Listen to what 
some of this passage says about the servant of the Lord. I'll read Isaiah 53 for us. And some of this wording, it might be a little bit confusing, so I'll I'll unpack it along the way because we're different than people 2,800 years ago. Let me read for us. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he goes on to talk about the servant in verse 2, Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty, and we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. So, so he begins talking about this, this person, this servant is going to come like a plant growing out of the ground, but it's growing out of dry ground. It's growing out of a, a bad place, and it's going to grow up in such a way that, that uh, he's not desirable. This doesn't look like a king. He's not tall, dark, and handsome. He's ordinary. He's plain. He knows what pain is. And people are going to despise him. Yet he himself bore, wore the weight of our sicknesses. He carried our pains. We in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Do you hear that? And we are healed by his wounds? This is confusing. This is not what what righteous kings that bring justice look like to them. In the midst of all that, it, it goes on a little bit later on. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He didn't even speak up for himself. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. So in the midst of that, what what the prophet Isaiah is saying is this servant is actually going to die even though he committed no offense. There was no sin in him. This does not look like a mighty warrior king to the people. But the story's not over. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. Pause there for a second. Death is not the end for this servant. There is something that he is going to get and see after death. This is resurrection predicted in the Old Testament. He's going to see the light and be satisfied by his knowledge, by righteous, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. That's crazy. That's a crazy prediction that the servant of the Lord is going to come in in such an ordinary way that he'll be unrecognizable as the great warrior king He'll come into this world, live righteously, take on the penalty of sin. He'll die because of it, but he's going to have life after death and he's going to inherit the great reward of God. This was written 800 years before Jesus walked the face of the earth. See, friends, God is just. God is just. That means he can't just wipe away the penalty for sin, someone has to pay for it. If God is going to be good, he has to be just because if bad things happen and God doesn't punish them, that makes him not a good God. That makes him bad. But God is good and God is just. So there's got to be a penalty for sin. And God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, God's gonna take the penalty. He's going to take it on his shoulders. God's solution to reverse our curse was for him to take it on himself. God wouldn't just take the weight of the world off our shoulders. He would put it on his own shoulders. And 800 years later, this man named Jesus is born into the world. We're told of Jesus' story that he was born of a virgin. Do you know where that was prophesied? In the book of Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14, the Savior of the world would be born of a virgin, and his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the servant that's going to restore our greatest gift, union with God. Jesus led a very ordinary life. The Bible doesn't even talk about his early years that much. But before he starts his public ministry, His first sermon comes from, guess where? The book of Isaiah. And he says these words when he stands up in the temple. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That sounds like the righteous warrior people want. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him because he just talked about the servant that they're waiting for. And he said in the presence of all of them, today as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. He said he's the servant that the world was waiting for. And then we watch him fulfill all the servant songs. Jesus lives righteously, which makes him uniquely able to bring justice to the world. Jesus lives like a light and salvation to the people in darkness. In fact, his closest friends are sinners, and he brings them into the light. Jesus' words were like salve or salvation for wounded sinners. He gave them encouragement for those who were lost. He said God had a place for them. 
Jesus was like the one prophesied in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50. Everything in Jesus' life points to him being the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And then Jesus' death and resurrection punctuates God's promise to remove our sin. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus is the servant that all of human history is not only needing, but craving to save us from our sin. And in the midst of his ministry, Jesus talks about how he's going to remove the weight of the world from our shoulders. Matthew told, or excuse me, in the book of Matthew, Jesus talked about what it meant to be one of his followers. He said in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is suddenly using farming terminology and teaching, which everyone would have understood because it was, an agra- it was an agrarian culture. It was a farming culture. So people knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus was talking about the yoke. The yoke was something that was laid on the shoulders of an ox to help plow the field. But remember, these weren't gardeners. These were farmers. Their entire livelihoods were contingent on the the success of the field. So the ox was wearing the weight of their world on his shoulders. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, it was too much for one ox to be responsible to plow all the fields. So two oxen would do it together. And the way that they would do it is they would have one mature oxen stand next to one training ox. They would be next to each other plowing the field. So when Jesus says, come to me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's inviting them into an apprenticeship. See, if you had two mature oxen together, there was too much work that needed to be done and you don't want to wear out your best oxen, so you would pick one mature oxen and one training oxen. Because two training oxen would go all over the place and the work would never get done. And it was way too important to leave that work up to two oxen in training. So Jesus is the mature one carrying the yoke. And he's inviting anyone, anyone who's weary to come. And take on his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. That's incredibly important for us to understand. Now, now Jesus was a rabbi, not a farmer. So why was he using this terminology? Well, well, it was actually a common idiom. It was was a common wordplay for rabbis who are teachers to talk about a yoke. In fact, every rabbi had a yoke. It was their teaching about life. It was about how people were to bear the weight of the world. So rabbis would use this verbiage pretty frequently, and Jesus is explaining his yoke to them, which is different than any other yoke. That's explained really well in the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, by a guy named Mark Comer, who wrote this. When Jesus is talking about his yoke, he's talking about his set of teachings. It's about how to be human, 
his way to shoulder the at times crippling weight of life. Marriage, divorce, prayer, money, sex, conflict resolution, government, all of it. What made Jesus unique wasn't that he had a yoke. All rabbis had a yoke. It was that he had an easy yoke. That should be stunning to us. The way that he's able to accomplish this is by taking on the weight of suffering and pain. You see, friends, Jesus has provided an eternal salvation from sin by his cross, but Jesus also provides daily freedom from the effects of curse on us by apprenticing him, by walking alongside him through this life. So I ask you, are you walking with him? Are you letting him teach you how to live in such a way that it's taking the weight of the world off of your shoulders? I want you to have access to this. I I want you to experience what the suffering servant took on in order that the weight of the world can come off your shoulders because you can't handle it. And if you think you can handle the weight of this world, you can't handle the weight of sin, which consequently ends in death. We need Christ. So what do we take away from this passage? How do we walk with Jesus under his yoke? The first thing that I believe all of us have to do is admit our limitations. I believe we have to admit our limitations. We want to do so many things. We want to do so much good in this world. And sometimes it mounts until we feel extreme pressure, even to accomplish good things. We need to admit our limitations. Because God is all-powerful. God is all-present. We are not like that. So you never have to admit that you're not all-powerful. You never have to confess that you're not all-present. You have to admit that you thought you could be. You have to admit your limitations in this life in order to come under the yoke of Jesus. Sometimes that means hurrying less, doing less, saying less to yes, saying yes to less. We need to acknowledge our limitations because we are not God. And secondly, we need to learn Jesus' way by walking with God. Last week, we, we presented a, a challenge, or, or maybe a better word is an opportunity for our whole church to read a chapter of the book of Luke every day through the month of December. There's 24 chapters in Luke 24 days before Christmas. If you follow along with that pattern, you can read the whole life of Christ before you celebrate the birth of Christ. If you haven't taken on that challenge, I invite you to start today. You don't even have to catch up. Just start the habit of reading it today. If you've struggled to maintain that challenge, I'd encourage you to just keep practicing walking with Jesus. While you have salvation from sin, Through the cross and resurrection, he also wants you to begin experience health and wholeness in this present life. But it only comes when we apprentice him, when we learn his life, when we learn how to walk with him. God didn't just give us an escape from the weight of the world. He also sent Jesus to carry the weight of the world. And we get the reward of getting to walk with God because of it. Are you embracing that opportunity? Uh, In our family, uh, all of us have chores, Uh, even our kids. I know we're terrible parents. 
And one of my, my youngest son's chores is taking out the trash. And when I was teaching him about taking out the trash, I would take the bag and, and walk with him to all the different trash cans of the house. And, and I would do the work of, of putting it in the bag. And then we'd walk out to the, the, the trash can, which is significantly bigger than him. And we'd both put our hand on the can and we'd, we'd walk the trash out to the curb together and we'd set it there. And then we'd come inside and mark on his little chore chart that he accomplished that chore. I did all the work and, and he got the reward. And he also got to walk with dad. That's the gift of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He carries the yoke. We get to walk alongside him. We get the reward of being with God. Will you take his yoke? Will you come under it? Will you learn to be his apprentice? Because that is where life is found, and that is my prayer for you. Heavenly Father, oh, that you would love us so much that, that you would be willing to even go to a cross for us. God, I, I am in awe of your word that even 800 years before the birth of Jesus, you would use the prophet Isaiah to explain exactly who your suffering servant is and what he came to do. Lord, we, we find great joy in the fact that your servant is a righteous king bringing justice. We find joy and comfort in the fact that he is a light and salvation to the world, waging war against chaos. We find joy in the fact that every word that comes from Christ is encouragement to our weary ears. And we find joy that Jesus bore the weight of the world in order that we would not have to by enduring the cross. Lord, I pray that we would cling to him for salvation and that we would have the courage to apprentice him in the everyday stuff of life by spending time with him in his word. Will you give us the plan and the diligence to follow through with that, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus and by his spirit, amen. Amen.